This episode is brought to you by Seek. The great job boom is upon us and there's never been a better time to take the next step in your path, yay. A little content warning for this episode, our discussion does include mentions of addiction and sexual assault, so please take care of yourself and if you need to, don't be afraid to reach out and ask for help. They've been socialized to believe that steady and stable equals safe and loved. The success wound is the pain that comes when we believe that our success equals our self-worth. And conscious success is how I define success, which means it's about how frequently I feel in flow and how often I'm actually listening to the directions and the goals and the vision set to me by my true self. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Our third guest for the mini-series is someone I hadn't met before the show, but who I'm incredibly grateful to have connected with. I think you'll hear pretty quickly in the episode how much her unique way of articulating human behaviours around challenge and change blew me away, and I can absolutely see why she is so good at unlocking the greatest potential and power in others. Brooke Taylor is a highly sought-after career coach, helping over 3,000 women globally to heal what she calls their success wound and find their greater purpose. So we are very lucky to have her here, giving you basically a one-on-one session in your ears. She also brings to her work the depth of her own personal entrepreneurial experience in her first career at Google, where she had a hugely successful career, even winning the Google Global Sales Award. I've always wanted to have a Google employee on the show, but now she's come the full circle, including Google as one of her business's clients, along with the likes of Uber, Amazon, McKinsey, and other massive industry leaders. For anyone interested in Brooke's coaching, which I feel like will be everybody at the end of this episode, I've popped links in the show notes to how you can get in touch with her for an introduction. And especially for anyone who needs to get unstuck in their careers, Brooke has so generously created a free worksheet, which is also linked in the show notes. I hope you guys enjoy learning from Brooke as much as I did. Brooke, welcome to Seize the Yay. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm thrilled to be here. It is such a joy to have you here from beautiful LA. I love that the internet allows us to have these conversations across time zones. So great. It's really wonderful here. I was living in Sydney for three years, which is how I came familiar with your work, but I have to say it's lovely to be home. Oh my gosh. Well, I can't wait to get into your journey. I think one of the most exciting things about this show to me is going through the pathway or the path yay, as I like to call it, because I think we start our lives with such a linear view of life and also thinking that we really have to make like a forever decision and stick with that. But obviously that's not how the best pathways unravel. So can you take us back to the very beginning and talk us through your younger self? Who did you first seek to become? What were your first ideas of jobs and pathways and what you wanted to be sort of when you grew up? 
Yeah, I was a very precocious young person. My first career path that I thought I wanted was to be an actress. In fact, when I was five, I asked Santa for an agent because my parents wouldn't take me to Hollywood. Yeah. So I was like, this is my, this is my kind of back doorway into Hollywood. I'll ask Santa for an agent. I'll get representation (laughs) and then I'll be the next Lindsay Lohan. Of course. Of course. And my parents informed me that Santa doesn't give people as presents. So I had to change it to in-sync tickets, which was a fine second option, but compromise. I call that compromise. A hundred percent. (laughs) Yeah. But When I look back on that younger self, really, I saw a desire to be significant and be seen and heard. And I think even Mm -hmm. at that young age, I didn't really, you know, feel very seen or heard. And that really kind of planted the seed for some later pivots and self-development work that I would have to do because growing up in Silicon Valley, the culture around me was, if you can dream it, you can build it. And you can get really mega rich and famous if you work really, really hard. And so that desire to be significant and to be seen and to be on this kind of world stage was kind of all around me. And that's what I thought success was from a young age. Yeah. It's so fascinating that you said that because I think so many of our decisions earlier on in life are informed by what we think success is as we grow up. Not necessarily any other metrics for life. (laughs) There's nothing about fulfillment or growth or, you know, even joy. It's all success driven and what that looks like for you. And it's so cool to be able to chat to someone because, you know, a lot of our guests are you know, Australian or grew up in Australia. And so, you know, and their ultimate goal is to get to the Silicon Valley or to Mm. get to Hollywood or to get to LA, whereas you grew up around that. So I can't imagine how much the world stage was already playing on your mind from those very early years. So I think it's fascinating that you, like many people, didn't end up doing what you first thought you would do or you know, did start out one way and then kind of it isn't what you ended up doing now. And now you help, you know, your career is helping other people forge their own pathways in the mess and noise of today. So can you give us a rundown of some of the sort of big pivots that did lead you to finding your place where you are now? Because I I know it wasn't a straight line. Not a straight line at all. In fact, a lot of highs and a lot of lows. So I think The first time that I brought home a straight A report card, I had never seen my dad more proud of me. He picked me up and twirled me around. And in my 11-year-old brain, in that moment, I learned that success and achievement equals love and belonging. And so that created within me a belief that my worthiness of love and belonging is contingent upon what I produce, what I achieve and what I do rather the inherent worth of who I am. And most Mm. parents are thrilled and pleased when their children achieve. I think that's very normal. And yet in my childhood brain, I equated that achievement with feeling safe. And so that actually created in me something that I call the success wound. And the success wound is the pain that comes when we believe that our success equals our self-worth, right? It's that splintering of ourself. It's that, you know, 
our true self gets obscured by the social self that needs to produce and achieve at all costs. And the splintering of those two selves is kind of what happened in that moment at age 11 for me. Oh my gosh. Can you relate to that at all? (laughs) I mean, you can see my face. The success wound as a concept is like you've just articulated in such an eloquent way everything that I talk about on this show that happened to me that seems to be reflected in some form or another in almost everyone's pathway to finding who they really are, it does almost always involve that kind of going down the pathway where success is the be-all and end-all and no matter what that looks like for you, but it's usually not the the concept of success that you end up Mm -hmm. with later on in life. But that splintering of your soul, like it just resonates so strongly Mm -hmm. because I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, as you know, you know, I was a corporate lawyer. The entirety of my purpose in life was to be successful and I didn't have an identity outside that at all. So it was Mm -hmm. impossible for me to like find any other metrics for life because it was so deeply ingrained in in who I was. But to have that realization at 11, I mean, you were well ahead of your time. (laughs) Well, I will say that this is all just come into picture, I'd say at age 29, looking back and helping really high achieving women who have this success when we all have it. And so, you know, from that point at age 11, the success wound really ran my life and it made me really, really sick. But it also took me to really incredible places. This gold star chasing mentality led me to an excellent school. I got a tremendous education. It led me to my first job at Google, which was a fantastic role. And eventually it led me to like really climbing the ladder, becoming a really young manager. But at the same time, this manic ambition, this need to succeed and achieve at all costs, again, made me really sick. In fact, I had to anesthetize the pain of that splintering of that wound with drugs and alcohol. And I hit out an addiction from age 18 to 24, you know, and it would look like this. I would be climbing the corporate ladder, working really hard, working in some instances, seven days a week, then going out on Saturday and Sunday to relieve the pressure, waking up in that kind of guilt and demoralization and that shame over only to just kind of do it again the next week. And it became this cycle. And, you know, eventually it really brought me to my knees because Ultimately, it actually caused me to not even report a sexual harassment that happened to me at Google because I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want my chances of promotion, which I was up for at the time, to be jeopardized by what I then thought was my fault. This was before the Me Too movement. So, you know, my success wound really, because it is really kind of this, the spiritual malady of self, right? Like Mm -hmm. this need to anesthetize the pain of not feeling good enough. That is addiction. And so I was addicted to external validation, to success, to alcohol. And eventually, again, it brought me to my knees and I did get sober at 24. So that was actually my first choice to heal this wound this and allow my healthy self, my true self to start leading. And Mm. it was only when I got sober that I could actually hear what that true self wanted and needed. And I needed to take a sabbatical. I needed to step away. I needed to actually get out of that kind of office environment for a bit. And listen to my true self, basically have my survivor self or my social self step aside for a second and ask myself these deep questions like, who are you really? What kind of contribution do you want to make in the world? 
what type of values do you have and how can you live in alignment with them? And I realized that the antidote to my success wound is actually something that I'm now calling conscious success. And conscious success is how I define success, which means Mm. it's about how frequently I feel in flow and how often I'm actually listening to the directions and the goals and the vision set to me by my true self, not my social self. Because my success wound will tell me even in my life as an entrepreneur, even in my career helping other people heal their success wound, I can still make it about revenue, about how many people I'm impacting, about volume, about... you know, And it's fine to have goals. But I want those to be set for my true self and not from a space of unworthiness and trying to fill that void. So, you know, again, after getting sober, I re-entered the corporate world. I was still at Google. I came back from my sabbatical and I started just kind of following the breadcrumbs of what my true and healthy self wanted. And what I realized is that I wanted to bring the principles of my recovery from drug and alcohol addiction into the corporate world and help other conscious corporate women like myself, women who are more spiritual, more interested in personal development and self-development to really transform their relationship with success. Because I believe very deeply that women aren't just the biggest untapped resource, but it's tuned in, turned on, aligned women in their power, in their conscious success that are the biggest untapped resource. So that has become my mission and my aligned ambition and my conscious success. And it all kind started from that age 11 moment to getting sober and to kind of taking that sabbatical and slowly following the breadcrumbs to today. Oh my gosh. Welcome everyone to Brooke's TED Talk on (laughs) life. (laughs) I have been so excited to have you on the show because of that, because if you walked into your life at the chapter you're in now, where you are so enlightened and you do have beautiful, articulate ways to express you know, the success wound and then conscious success that it would be so easy to think that you were always on track, that you always had direction and you always knew what you wanted to do. And I think it's so reassuring to go through and see not only did you start sort of in many people's dream job, like working at Google is kind of the, you know, objective dream. It's like this ultimate, like, you know, we'd all kill to be there. But to hear that it also cost you so much, Mm. but that you can also get yourself out of the lowest lows at the same time to build back up. Like it's just there are so many ways that I think the dots don't connect at the time, but you can bring them back together if you're willing to do the work. There's just so much in your story that it just gets me so excited to talk about because I think, you know, in the context of what we're talking about today, I don't know about the statistics in America, but. 61% of Australians don't want to change jobs in the next 12 months Mm. or don't want to change, you know, do any big life changes. But I think you're such an example. And particularly as a coach, you must see it all the time. This aversion to change, this aversion to stepping, like even a sabbatical is kind of unheard of. Like I'm not going to take a break from my pathway up the ladder, but obviously the growth it has allowed you by being willing to change yourself and to change fundamentally everything about your values for life has opened up this whole new chapter of your life free from Mm -hmm. addiction and lack of self-worth. So what do you see now as a coach as the biggest barriers that people face to change, weaving in what you found the biggest barriers at the time, but also how you push through them 
how you mm-hmm. push through to just be like, this is not my story anymore. I don't have to sit in what everyone else thinks is successful because it costs me this much. I can still do it. I can go back to the same company even, but be mm-hmm. a different person. Mm-hmm. Totally. As I reflect on that question, I think there are two types of barriers. The first is the internal barriers and the second are the external barriers. The internal barriers really kind of writ large is this success wound because what the success wound does is it clouds our true self from being able to speak. Our true Mm -hmm. self is where our passion lives, our purpose, our yay, our innate sense of direction. Even Joseph Campbell, who wrote on the power of myth, he said after all of his research, he said that there exists within each individual a natural and innate internal track. And when we all kind of discover what that internal track is, you'll realize that not only was it there all along, but it leads you into the career and into the bliss that is available to all of us. So really the success wound is where fear lives. It's where comparison Mm. lives. It's where the belief of, you know, if I relax a little bit, I might lose my edge or (gasps) it might take a catalytic event for me to be jolted into finally making a change. It's where almost that analysis paralysis of, okay, are you my purpose? Are you my purpose? Is this my path? Is this my path? And inaction begets, it almost erodes our self-esteem. So what I see Mm. is that women and men as well, who might even be in their quote, dream job or their fine job, they still have a hard time having right relationship with work and success. That notion of if I relax a little bit, I'll lose my edge, right? Mm. Or the people who are hesitant to change jobs, it really is because their social self, they've been socialized to believe that steady and stable equal safe and loved, right? And we are not going to make any decisions that threaten our sense of safety, security, and feeling loved. And so if our sense of being loved is through external validation, well, then I'm not going to risk that. I'm not going to go on a limb and fear being embarrassed or looking stupid or failing. I mean, you've had so many entrepreneurial endeavors, and I'm sure there was a fear there around failing and looking stupid and what that would mean for your identity, right? It's not just, you know, the event itself. It's about what does this mean about who I am? And so, you know, really the first step in breaking that internal barrier of that success wound is diagnosing what is the size and shape of my success wound? Like I would, if I was going to the doctor and I had like this gaping hole, I'd be like, okay, it's this many inches long. (laughs) It's, you know, it was caused by a laceration of this. I want you to look at the causes and conditions of like, what did success look like to me growing up? What subconscious ideal am I comparing myself to about what a good podcast host looks like or a good employee looks like or a good woman looks like? So looking at that and deciding, okay, you know, do I want that to be my story today? That would be the first step. And then very quickly, the second kind of category would be the external barriers, the very real barriers that do exist around bias around likability bias, especially for women, attribution, performance attribution bias, and maybe even socioeconomic preventions that things, 
instances or barriers that prevent people from actually seeking other opportunities. But I really do believe that it's the success wound that is really the primary barrier for people not seeking opportunities, despite the very favorable job market that we're in. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like one of the things that makes a coach so impactful in my eyes anyway, is the ability to make really lofty, hard to grasp ideas into something really practical that allows you to take action about them. Like most people can acknowledge self-doubt. Most people can acknowledge need for certainty, but to actually give it a, a real life translation, like the problem with all of these things is they're intangible ideas. So it's really hard to know, like, yes, we can all acknowledge them, but then how do I change my life based mm. on these things? And the way you have just turned it into physically translated it into a wound is just like blowing my brain. It's so revolutionary, the idea that we can measure like how deep is that wound and then work towards healing it. For people who have trouble translating ideas into action, as you said, inaction begets like lack of self-confidence, seeing it as slowly healing a wound and not like you wouldn't expect like a stab wound to heal overnight. You know, you're not going to find your joy and heal your misguided or skewed views of success in one day, but it's all the little steps that you take along the way that will allow it to heal. And that's just, you know, someone just sometimes comes into your life and says something in a different way, the same thing, but in a different way. And it just changes everything that has given me such a new perspective. Thank you so much for that. Now I'm like, I'm oh, so I know glad. what I'm saying. <laughs> well, let me ask you, what do you think is your, the size and shape of your success wound? Like what did success look like for you growing up? Oh, that is a great question. And I think now I can actually quantify it because you've given me the, the tool of this language. I think now it's, I have a battle scar, like a massive battle scar that if I play with it too much, it opens up a little bit again. Mm. And if I really don't arrest the playing, like once I see it, it'll reopen altogether. Mm -hmm. It was really deep in my corporate career. It was like intellectual and academic and professional achievement were the markers that formed who I was. They were the only things I knew how to chase. They were really the only things I cared about, not even because of financial reward, just purely because productivity was my value for myself. My innate worth had always been doing and achieving and progress. And it was really deep to the point where there was nothing else. And, you know, what you were saying before, I mean, the fact that you could experience something as intense as a sexual assault and still the wound would be blinding enough to make you think, no, no, I don't want to rock the boat. Mine didn't get that dire, but it did get to the complete exclusion of happiness and a whole mm. side of my, the dominant side of my personality just dying slowly. Mm. And so I think for me, it did take a, you know, cataclysmic event to arrest that cycle. But I think maybe over now, the last seven to eight years, I've been able to heal it slowly, slowly that it was gaping. Now it's probably mostly healed, but does get picked open every now and then <laughs> easily <100%. as> well. <laughs> Same with me. Same with me. And there are moments like I just moved to LA and I intentionally kept my schedule a little bit lighter so that I could get acclimated and do some home improvement projects and paint my wall matcha green. <laughs> my favorite green. I know you would like that. And, you know, there was still these, this little voice in the back of my head that said, you're not doing enough. 
You're not making the most of this time. You should be having more meetings. Why aren't you booking more clients? Why aren't you doing more? And in those moments, now I have the tools and I have this thing that I call the success wound protocol, which is just a quick three-step process that I do in in my mind. And I say, okay, hold up. What ideal are you holding yourself to right now? What do you think a successful coach is supposed to look like based on what you're seeing on Instagram or LinkedIn or in the news? And so I say, okay, I'm holding myself to this false ideal. Step two is to remind myself that my success is dictated by how frequently I'm following the directions of my true self and internal guidance system and how truly embodied am I in my true self? Am I living my values? Am I treating other people with respect? Am I having fun? Am I enjoying this one precious life? And then step three is to do something that activates my true self. So deep breathing, calling a friend and asking them to reflect back to me one strength of mine, something like that. So that success when protocol, that one, two, three really activates me back into my conscious success and stops that burnout and stops me from picking my battle wing star. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like eternal scab picker. I'm working on it. (laughs) Totally. Lovely neighborhood. You all know how excited I get about life unraveling in chapters and how uncertainty is the greatest platform for opportunity. After a few tough years, the great job boom is upon us and there has never been a better time to start the next step in your path. We talk at length on this show about the obstacles to change and the statistics are real. 45%, nearly half of Aussies are worried their skills and resume won't stack up against other Aussies. 59% are worried that if they change jobs, it might not be the right role or company for them. But if you let your mind worry that there's a risk it won't work out, logic insists that you must also accept that it could also work out better than you had ever dreamed. Plus, the numbers are on your side. In March, job ads on Seek were up 32% compared to the same time last year and 51% compared to pre-pandemic levels. But job applications per job ad are down 42% compared to pre-pandemic levels, so there are more jobs but less competition than ever before. So if you're looking to change Parthiers, head on over to Seek and take advantage of the great job boom. So, I mean, we are so incredibly lucky to have you here bringing the the perspectives you have as a coach, but even just the fact that you have worked in somewhere like Google, that is just such a mammoth, that is, you know, the dream on the outside. And I'm sure there were so many incredible positives as well. But from your unique perspective as a woman, you kind of touched a little bit before on how women face an additional layer of self-doubt and worth and we have different pathways and priorities that come into our career with families and you know there's there's a whole unique range of of things that we go through as women in, in corporate contexts particularly as big and as competitive as somewhere like Google from your time there is there anything you saw in the workplace that holds women back in particular that might really stop women right now. We were talking about such a favorable Mm -hmm. job market Mm -hmm. that just we could be more aware of or maybe start to build a toolkit for now so that we don't miss the chance to take advantage of this job boom. So I do work primarily with conscious corporate women and female identifying individuals 
both in a one-to-one context. And I also still do a lot of work within corporations, helping corporations to heal their success wound and Mm. helping, you know, give voice to marginalized individuals. I've done a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting as well. And Western society, and I guess society in general's expectations of women are unrealistic and they're detrimental. And that is regardless of if you're the industry that you're in. And, you know, this Western ideal for what a successful woman looks like, what a successful mother looks like, is based on patriarchal systems that are actually intentionally designed to exclude women. And we know that because female representation is still not equal in all industries and in all positions of power. You know, when I was doing diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting in Sydney, we realized that it was going to take another 200 years to get to gender parity in the workplace and to uh, annihilate the gender pay gap. So women have been conditioned to think of themselves as less than and undeserving or imposters as they strive to hit a standard that is truly impossible to meet. So, you know, this disproportionate mental load that working mothers carry, not to mention the physical load, a new mother, it really creates this double bind for working mothers to live up to extremely high expectations at home and work. And, you know, this is why I believe that women are actually uniquely qualified to heal their success wound and transform our culture's definition of what success looks like into a much more conscious version of success. Because imagine if our world and even our organizations and our corporations defined success not in terms of power or consumption or revenue or wealth, but in terms of inclusion and self-love and community Mm. and reverence for the earth. And this isn't just like an airy fairy idea. Corporations really are talking about like, what does a conscious culture look like? Like I know that Cisco, for example, their cultural manifesto is about conscious culture and employees now And people who are seeking jobs are so in the position of power because top talent is at a premium that they are no longer allowing for shitty diversity numbers or shitty (laughs) cultures or like general bullshit. Like people will not take, I saw the stat, people won't take jobs if diversity, equity, and inclusion numbers aren't there. Mm. Millennials are over 60% of the workforce. We want meaning more than anything. Gen Z, you bet your bottom dollar, they're not going to work for a company that doesn't have a corporate social responsibility you know, manifesto that they're actually following. So these Mm. younger generations that are coming up and are occupying places of power, like they're demanding that businesses change and our organizations change. So women and everybody need to actually look at this success wound in themselves and look at it in their organization and hold these companies to be better. And I think Mm. that you can have confidence now in the safety that exists in pursuing a job that is of highest standards and is aligned with your true self. Because Mm. there's always been that safety. That safety has always existed for you. But now more than ever, you're more in a position of power in a job market. And that's, that's really esteem building. It's so exciting. Like it's just, you know, we're in this unique cultural phenomenon where 
jobs are up, like the amount of jobs advertised are up by, I think it's like over 30%, but the amount of applicants is down by almost the same amount. So there's this enormous Mm. jump from both directions, Mm -hmm. allowing you to have more, be more selective, be more discerning, but also just like have a go at something you've always thought about doing. You know, the quote that I really love coming out of the past couple of years is when nothing is certain, anything is possible. So yeah, uncertainty is incredibly scary and throws everything up in the air, but you can create your own certainty. You also have choice towards what you do with that uncertainty. But I think one thing I'd love to ask you, because you have the unique perspective of having grown up in America, come to Australia, seen our working landscape, consulted in it, and then gone back to America. Something I've heard spoken about a lot, particularly when we had Matcha Maiden and we were working in the US a lot, is that part of the larrikin Australian culture and the tall poppy syndrome that's quite rife in our, not everywhere, not in all corners, but that is generally a cultural phenomenon here, I think tends to make us very self-deprecating. It's something like Aussies use self-deprecation as a form of bonding. You know, you don't want to get too big for your boots or anything. It makes it very hard for us to pitch ourselves. It makes it really hard to put your best foot forward, even though logically that's what you should be doing. You know, it's almost like we wear self-deprecation and humility as a badge. Whereas when I would go to America and would pitch things or pitch myself or pitch our business and start with the self-deprecation, people would pull you up and be like, don't say that. And I would find it so weird. I'm like, but it would be arrogant for me to say anything other than I'm so crap. (laughs) But Americans culturally would be like, dude, you are not going to get ahead if you keep like hanging shit on yourself like that all the time. And it's such a small tweak in your mentality, but it really does make a difference. So how Mm. do you think we can learn to put our best foot forward and get around the awkwardness of pitching yourself to make sure we don't miss out on this job boom? Mm. I found this so fascinating and you're so right that when I was going into organizations and literally teaching women how to own their career and own their success and promote themselves, tall poppy would come up over and over and over again. And I'll hit this at a few different levels. I'll hit this at the cognitive level first. So things that you can shift in your mindset. I'm taking this from a program at Google called I am remarkable. And in this program, they made the beautiful assertion that it's not bragging if it's fact-based. <gasps> That's amazing. I mean, so straightforward, but amazing. If I'm telling you about the facts of what I've accomplished and done, that's not bragging. That's not bragging. Wow. Yeah. It's just stating facts. I'm stating facts. If I were to exaggerate that or you know, pump up my ego as a result, that's bragging, but not if I am grounded in the truth of my contribution and stating that with conviction and with fact. So that's the first twist that I would offer to you is it's not bragging if it's fact-based. The second element here, and I think this is probably true for many Australians, is that when we were younger, we got pulled up for maybe talking about ourselves and, you know, talking about our accomplishments or had moments of being embarrassed or publicly shamed or having those moments of trauma at school when people are like, oh, you think you're so great, don't you? Like all of that. (laughs) There's an injured part of you inside 
And so my recommendation would be when you are going into your manager to talk about your promotions in a fact-based way and you're finding yourself feeling sheepish or getting a pit in your stomach, talk to that younger part of you that felt ashamed. Can you identify or remember an instance where you felt publicly embarrassed or shamed when you spoke about yourself in front of somebody and it didn't go well? Is there a part of you that doesn't want to feel seen? Is there a part of you that feels ashamed for something and speak to that younger self like you would a young friend or a young cousin or a child and just say like, it's okay. It's safe. It is safe for me to go in and share my truth and my accomplishments with ease. And then the third level that I would offer to you is more of kind of a a spiritual or an energetic level, but what our words matter and the way that we define ourselves matters. And the way we use to to, to talk about ourselves really does matter. And so there's this exercise that I do with some of my clients where I have them write down, like, what are the words that you describe yourself when things are going well? And what are the words that you use to describe yourself when things aren't going well? Because identity is the most powerful force in human personality. And so even if on a subconscious level, we're saying like, I'm so shit or like, oh, I should have, you know, worn lip gloss today or whatever it is. If we're self-deprecating, that actually is coming from a small kernel of truth and kind of shame-faced identity. So you're going to want to watch that. Yeah. And I think that I was going to ask the next question about kind of how to bounce back from rejection also, which is an inevitable part of applying for new jobs that you won't get every single job that you apply for. And I think rejection creates that same wound of like, Mm. ow, but I feel like you've just answered the question, really speaking to yourself about like, what does that mean? Nothing really just means I wasn't suited or that wasn't the right thing for me. Like there's so much internal dialogue you can do before even going to external resources or friends to kind of get yourself through that feeling of, oof, ow, yuck. Like Mm -hmm. no one loves projection. It's not something we seek out. But that is like sometimes the cost of getting the one that is meant for you is getting knockbacks first from the ones that aren't. Yeah. I mean, rejection is the universe's protection. And I believe so, so deeply, so deeply that just like there is a person or a soulmate for every individual, or there's a best friend that's suited for every individual. If you are being called towards something else in your work, it's because that something else is literally calling you to. Yeah. <laughs> like there is an, a match for you out there from a purpose standpoint, from a calling standpoint, from a job standpoint. Like Joseph Campbell says, within each of us, there's this internal track that exists where we can find that purpose and meaning. And it's about really aligning our God-given ambition to something that is meaningful to us, to a career that is esteem building. And so if we see rejection as protection or as obstacles, as detours in the right direction, or as the fact that, you know, it's just another test to raise our standards. Because a lot of my clients actually like, they don't have as hard time with rejection as they do getting a job offer that actually doesn't meet their standards or criteria and having to say no to that thing. Because that's the ultimate test. That's actually so interesting. When you're saying no to something, we don't consider what the alternative is, is saying yes to it and then hating it or yes to it and Mm -hmm. then being stuck in it. But if you actually think about it as a like a fork in the road, like if it didn't say no to you, you could have gone down this other pathway, then suddenly it makes the rejection a lot easier because you realize, oh, that saved me from that pathway. A hundred percent. And 
I believe that we're going to get tests from the universe or from whatever to say, is your self-worth high enough? And especially in this job market, Mm. I've coached so many people, even my younger sister, who's looking for her first job to the fact that like, keep your standards high, ask your true self, what she, he, it, they need in order to thrive. And I would say set five non-negotiables, right? Like what do you need in terms of culture, management, community, impact, How do you want to feel every day and Mm. go in with that criteria and do not accept anything less than that. And you do not have to in this job market. You never did have to. I truly believe that, but things are going to happen a lot faster in this job market. And when you actually pursue that conviction, because it's not necessarily Mm. just about being rejected, but it is also about rejecting other opportunities in favor of the thing that's highest and best for you. Yeah, absolutely. It is the power rests with the applicant at the moment and that's a very exciting time. One more thing I'd love to ask just because it is so exciting to have someone who has seen both the inner workings as an employee of like a big corporation but also consults to other corporations of all different sizes but has also changed your life structure to working for yourself. I think something that I probably leaned too much towards in the beginning of Seize the Yay was the idea of being liberated from the corporate structure because that was my pathway. That was my yay. And that has been my way of realizing my best talents and passions and and everything like that. Whereas over time, I've also realized the emphasis, not much more needs to be, but equally needs to be on the fact that the entrepreneurial pathway can be as creative and as diverse and exciting and there are places where you can be entrepreneurial inside the kind of resources and power of a corporation and maybe even have more resources behind you to do the things that you want to do. You don't have to leave your job to get freedom is what I'm saying. So I couldn't agree more. Having seen like on that entrepreneurial kind of story, I imagine that Google is one of the places of all places in the world where internal innovation is like prized and encouraged what words do you have as a now entrepreneur having come from an entrepreneurial world on the entrepreneurial pathway as being another open, exciting pathway? Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. I also probably at the beginning leaned a little too far into let me liberate people from the oppressive corporate structure without actually listening to, to people's wants and needs. And people want to stay in corporations. And we need, again, we need conscious turned on, tuned in people who have healed their success wound in corporations to create the next products, to create inclusive services, to change the way that our corporations operate. So what I see in in terms of people being really successful in that entrepreneurial way at these organizations is first and foremost, healing your success wound and doing your personal development work. Because better human leads to better leadership leads to better performance. That kind of almost it forms a triangle, right? Better human at the at the bottom and better performance at the top. I teach that in my group coaching programs at McKinsey and Google and Uber and doing your personal development work, identifying your triggers, bolstering your self-awareness, increasing that metacognition or that ability to observe oneself in action and being able to change your behavior, change your emotional response is going to be so critical in your entrepreneurial journey because people want to work with other good people. 
Like, have you ever worked for a boss who wasn't self-aware? And how much did that suck? Like, we (laughs) like working with people who are like at minimum self-aware and ideally Mm. who have beautiful emotional intelligence. So as a coach, like I'm always preaching the inside out method of career development. And I always say it's not about promotion. It's about ascension ascending to your higher self and living in alignment with that because that's when the innovation comes through. Brene Brown always says that you can't have innovation without vulnerability. And in order to have that vulnerability, we need to be able to rest on our courage and our confidence. So we need to be able to Mm. cultivate that. Absolutely. And just a guilty pleasure question about the entrepreneurial life. What are the coolest things that you've seen at Google, at Uber, inside these companies that like I would never go back to old me because that just wasn't my path, but there are parts of the corporate life that I really miss and there are some really Mm. cool perks. I can't imagine at Silicon Valley level what those perks actually look like. What are some of the coolest things inside companies you've seen? Oh my gosh. So at the Googleplex in Mountain View, which is like 10 minutes from my house, they actually have a full service Indian restaurant at the (laughs) campus. (laughs) No way. <laughs> Swear to God. Like trolleys full of beautiful, delicious Indian food and they bring it over and you have to make a reservation at the restaurant. There's a very large, very active Indian community in Mountain View and you just hear Tamil and you know it's a really beautiful kind of experience. So that was really cool at Google. That It's like a little known secret. That was awesome. I really appreciated and loved some of the the programs and opportunities for learning and development at these places. And that's what also keeps me employed today. They have incredible programs for, you know, they have this awesome program for women called Stretch that encourages women to kind of stretch outside of their comfort zone. And when I took that at Google, it actually led to me launching a really innovative, different product and project, which actually helped me secure a promotion. So they also have like mindfulness courses and that kind of thing. But I, honestly, the Indian restaurant stands out above the rest. I love that, that like some people are like indoor slides, playgrounds, <laughs> yeah. bicycles to get around campus. You're like, another food. Absolutely no, the food. food. Like- <laughs> if I'm being honest, in my times of active partying, I would rely on the nap pods maybe a bit too heavily. So those were cool, but you know, it was the Indian restaurant for me. But you know what? The existence of those nap pods also, I think, emphasizes the idea that even within like one of the most successful companies in the world with like the most successful minds being employed there, the idea that you need to sometimes go backwards to go forwards, like sleep. To, not that that's going backwards, but that like you can't be productive unless you also take breaks. A hundred percent. I love that there are nap pods because sometimes you just need some shut eye. Sometimes you just need a 20 minute power nap and you can come back, you know, bigger than ever. That is so, so true. Are you <laughs> allowed to go so there whenever you wanted? Like anytime? I mean, yeah, you had to get your work done, but I could go in for a 20 minute (laughs) meeting, you know, nap between meetings for sure. (gasps) Oh my God. So when I was in Hong Kong, I was working there for a year with the law firm and I was still kind of coming back from adrenal fatigue. I was still really underweight Mm. after Africa and I napped all the time. Like I didn't understand when I first got there that why people would nap at their desks. By the end, like I was like, I'd send Nick photos of like people napping and be like, oh my God, who does that? And by the end, he came over and I had like a pillow under my desk. But there were no pods, right? Like I just had to make right. a bed on the floor. I'm like, we needed pods. Every workplace needs a nap pod. Can you imagine the productivity increase? 
I think it's a brilliant idea. I'm a big fan of the midday nap even today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, my bed's just there. It's not midday in Australia yet. I could, could totally smash one out. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it would be remiss of me not to finish up with a non-work-related question too, because of course, cultivating your joy and playing outside of your productivity, I think is one of the most important things for a really fulfilling life. So how do you cultivate your identity outside of work? And are there any kind of play activities that you do that don't have a productive outcome that allow you to forget what time it is and that are just for fun? I have some intentions having moved to LA that I want to do with this. I want to take improv classes, which I think would be so fun. Like comedy classes. (laughs) Maybe I'll get my big break. Maybe I'll find, maybe I will become an actress. Who knows? We'll come back next episode and I'll be like, how's that Netflix special going? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, look out. I'd love to do that. I took hip hop lessons, hip hop dance classes in Sydney before the pandemic. And they were, people were so good. People were so, so good. It was like a beginner's dance class, but they were really experts. And I'd love to bring that back. (laughs) It was really humbling. Learning to surf in Australia was super humbling too. I don't think I'll continue that one, but I will do improv and dance, I think. Oh, amazing. The dance classes in LA, like the studios over there are insane. I know. I don't think I can do it. <laughs> I don't I think I can. <laughs> Absolutely. Put your yeah. coaching hat on, gal. You can do whatever you set your mind to. Growth mindset. I can't do <laughs> it yet, mindset. but I will. Yeah, you need to heal that wound. You're picking at your wound. Stop it. You're totally right. <laughs> and last question, what is your favorite quote? My favorite quote is honestly from my recovery and that's one day at a time. I believe we can do incredible things one day at a time. And it's a motto that I live by. I don't have to do life all at once. I can just do it one day at a time. And that is just puts me into a state of my truth self, just listening to that. Mm. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Thank you so much, Brooke. This was absolutely transformative. Like genuinely, I feel like I just had a one-on-one coaching session and then I also happened to be able to share it with other people. But this, I just got so much out of this. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's so fun. Thank you so much.